0: I'm Dr. Samir Puri, a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and a former ceasefire monitor in East Ukraine. And the question I want to pose today is whether Russia can achieve any of its objectives in Ukraine. Now, let's start with the obvious. It's really not looking very good for Russia from a military perspective. Aside from the obvious immorality of its invasion of Ukraine that began on the 24th of February, Russia's military woes have been mounting. For instance, around its overly optimistic campaign planning, its stretched logistical lines, its poor morale and lack of readiness among some of its soldiers, the lack of meaningful close air support to cover its advances, the relative lack of cyber warfare support, and of course, the doggedness of Ukraine's armed forces and their resistance. It's very clear that Vladimir Putin's original regime change objective has been stymied, and Russia's armed forces have been left at the gates of numerous Ukrainian cities, often struggling to enter in force and resulting in bombardments from distances. When they have entered, Ukrainians have hunted them with Western-supplied anti-tank missiles. Now, absolute victory for either side is looking increasingly improbable. From the Ukrainian perspective, no matter how spirited its defence has been, I guess even the wildest fantasies the Ukrainians and their supporters outside, in which Ukraine counterattacks across all of the various fronts bisecting Ukraine and retakes all of its territory, also seems relatively fanciful, notably given the fact that Ukraine is clearly suffering its own military losses as this war progresses. Which leads me to look at a often neglected aspect of the conflict, and that is the fact that there is talking and negotiation unfolding between Russia and Ukraine alongside the fighting some of us may not realize that within just four days of the invasion beginning on the 24th of february russia and ukraine held their first face-to-face bilateral talks now at the time the kremlin was almost certainly overly optimistic about its chances of military success and thought it would be imposing victor's peace on ukraine instead as the talks have progressed. Through several rounds face to face in different parts of Belarus, before moving online on the 14th of March, the delegations have reported to the press a difference in tone, in which Russia, as its battlefield fortunes have faltered, has walked back from the maximalist demand of regime change, and has seemingly entertained the possibility of a settlement in which Zelensky's government remains in power. Now, the US has poured cold water over these negotiations, saying that there are no signs Russian President Putin is prepared to stop the invasion and to de-escalate. And of course, these talks must be approached with a health warning, given Putin's propensity to lie about Russia's intentions in Ukraine throughout. And from my own experiences in Ukraine in 2014-15, Russia's great ability to fight and to talk at the same time which was precisely how it achieved some of its successes around the 2015 Minsk II package, agreed at the same time as Russian forces were waging an offensive against the East Ukraine town of Debaltseve. So fast forwarding to where we are now and thinking about the future. How will the dynamics of fighting and talking influence the unfolding conflict in Ukraine? Well, there are two golden rules in fighting and talking that we can see from other conflicts around the world in recent history. The first is that each side will seek battlefield gains that can be triangulated into negotiating power. For Ukraine, this means holding onto as much of its territory as possible. And for Russia, this involves intensifying its stranglehold over various besieged cities, but also potentially expanding the conflict to hitherto untouched areas, such as those in west and southwest Ukraine that have been struck by recent Russian missile attacks. The second golden rule is that an interim agreement is much more realistic to secure in early negotiations than a binding full-blown settlement to end the war. The lightest commitment would be a temporary truce, the lights of which were supposedly agreed around the humanitarian corridors but not really respected because Russia continued its bombardment. Moving up from a truce, we'd have a cessation of hostilities, which, interestingly, is different to a formal ceasefire. Now, what's the difference? A cessation of hostilities means that the combatants are willing to stop fighting, but a formal ceasefire would be negotiated alongside other de-escalation commitments. For instance, the repositioning and withdrawal of military units and weapon systems, buying time for future talks. The most binding agreement of all would be an armistice, which optimistically is something in years to come would be really required to allow Ukraine and Russia to exist side by side in some measure of stability. Now, the issues on the table... Uh, include some which sources close to the talk say are bridgeable in terms of the gap between the two sides, such as Ukraine's neutrality and the fact it would forswear future NATO membership, and other topics of negotiations, such as the ultimate status of Crimea and the Donbass, which are going to prove very, very difficult to come to an agreement over because Zelensky has said that he will not want to give up any of Ukraine's territory. However, even if the chances of a negotiated settlement seem very weak now, and even if this war is to carry on for months, possibly even for the best part of this year, maybe even longer, with many more cycles of violence yet to come, all wars ultimately end. And all wars ultimately end either in battlefield victory or some kind of negotiated settlement, which ensues withdrawal of forces And tracking these negotiations is going to be an increasingly important part of understanding how this war develops.